Good morning, Park Hyde Park. It's a pleasure to be here again today to open the word for you. Uh, my name is Jim White. I'm one of the members here, and I get to fill in on occasion um, in, in the pulpit here. So um, our text for today is Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. So you'll notice we're going back to the beginning. Um, so that's Luke 1, chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. And if you haven't grabbed one of these books, um, you know, yeah, Book of Luke, I, there, there should be some available, I think, still. Um, they're good to have. You can take notes as you go. So we encourage you to do that. So Luke, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been answered, your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom. the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and, and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hiding, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon, looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> so it is a custom in the United States when you're in eighth grade, a lot of times, uh, kids will load up in a bus and drive into D.C. to check out the memorials there, um, and that's their eighth grade trip. In Austria, where I grew up, we didn't have that option. Um, instead, we would go uh, to a two-day trip uh, hiking in the Alps, which was, I thought was better. 
um, we would spend the, the time um, working our way up the mountain. Uh, we started out on a beautiful walk through the woods. It was ever ascending, the hill turned into a mountain. The path became narrower and steeper. By the end of the day, we were exhausted, and the path was at its steepest and rockiest. But we got that far by faithfully putting one foot in front of the other for hours on end. At one point, we had to make a decision. There was the road that would serpentine. It would take us a lot longer to get there, or we could go straight up the side of the mountain, the last stretch of the mountain there. Um, we decided we chose the, the steep path. So here we were. It was our hardest uh, hike for the day. Occasionally, my foot would slip from under me, and I would, have to, you know, I would lose ground, and I would have to make up that lost ground and continue to move upwards on the mountain. But it was all worth it. By the time I got to the top, the views were just incredible. The sky was a beautiful, clear blue. The air was fresh and crisp. We were surrounded by other peaks of mountains off in the distance. When we looked down below us, we could see the green meadows that we, would, that we passed on the way up and the, the lush green woods that we started off in earlier that day. It was definitely worth it. The steady, monotonous pace of putting one foot in front of the other, occasionally slipping and losing ground, but moving forward nevertheless, is what got us to the top of the mountain that day. Our text introduces us to Zechariah and Elizabeth, who faithfully obeyed God as they walked their path through life. Day in and day out, they obeyed the commandments of God. Our text also shows how Zechariah slipped and temporarily lost some ground on his journey. So the big picture of the text today is while God cared deeply and personally for Zechariah and Elizabeth in their pain, he also cares for all his people around the world and throughout history. So let me invite you into the story for today. It is a true story. It's a story about real people in real history. It starts with, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Luke wants us to know that this story really happened in our historical context. And sure enough, the historians, the early historians like Josephus, um, mention how Herod the Great was made king of the Jewish people when Mark Antony and the Roman Senate commissioned him as king in 40 BC. So there is actual hard evidence of this fact that Luke wants us to know. Luke continues on to introduce us to the main characters of his story, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They both come from repu reputable, prominent lineage from among the priesthood of Israel. Um, yeah. Zechariah was one of the house of Abijam. His family line goes all the way back to when David, King David, divided up the priesthood and had them come up in, in groups um, to serve in the temple and, and for a, sh a short period of time. And then they would be relieved by the next group of priests that would come up and relieve him. So his lineage goes all the way back to King David. Elizabeth also comes from the priestly line and is identified as a daughter of Aaron. So also all the way back to the beginning. Both are described as being righteous before God and blameless in all commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, we must understand that even though we are in the New Testament, Luke is still talking about Old Testament uh, righteousness and blamelessness. 
Zechariah and Elizabeth were not sinless. They were not perfect. Old Testament righteousness often was more focused on the outward actions of a person and the faithful adherence of the religious traditions, like keeping to the dietary restrictions, observing the holy days, and participating in the sacrificial system. People could observe the actions of Zechariah and Elizabeth and assume they were righteous and blameless. In reality, they probably still struggled with doubts and sin in their hearts, as we do today. They even had their moments of weakness hidden in their hearts. They certainly knew pain and suffering as they were childless and reached an age where their hope and prayers for a child have all but faded away. So this is Luke's introduction for us to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now Luke shifts in the story and moves to the main act of this story starting in verse 8. There again, we see that the many priests in Israel um, are divided up into divisions, and they come up to the temple to serve. Uh, And at this time, it is Zechariah's division that it's their turn to come up to the the temple and serve. And even there, there are so many different tasks that uh, not every priest can do. There are specific special tasks that were that priests would have to be identified. So they by lot or by you know, casting of the dice or whatever, um, they were to be chosen for some of these special tasks. And one of the t- special tasks is that burning incense um, was was one of those honored tasks. So they had to cast lots and they ch- had to pick who was going to be. In 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 the end, this was kind of like a once in a lifetime event for one of the priests. So it doesn't happen very often. On this day, Zechariah was chosen by Lot to enter the holy place and on behalf of the people. This was Zechariah's once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. As the crowd waited and prayed outside, Zechariah entered the holy place, and he must have been beside himself with excitement. The space was truly awe-inspiring. The walls were covered in gold. There's ornate decorations, and all of those were covered in gold. The, uh, the table of the bread of presents was on the right. It was covered in gold. The lampstand was gold, and that stood on the left. And in front of him was the gold-covered um, uh, altar for the incense. And even that bef- behind that is the, the beautiful pur- purple uh, um, curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. So here he is, Zechariah, in the holy place, preparing to, to place the incense on the altar, and suddenly an angel appears. Of course, he was scared, and I love the, the response of, of the angel is, don't be afraid. It seems like most angels introduce themselves with that phrase, fear not, or I am. So it's, it's fascinating. Um, so he was definitely scared out of his mind at that time. The angel said in verse 13, Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. After the angel said that and a couple other things, in verse 18, Zechariah responds with doubt. And he said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Zechariah basically was demanding proof that what the angel said was actually going to happen. He doubted. He doubted the angel's words. But worse than that, he doubted God's very promises. 
And I love how Gabriel responded. So I mean, a little creative um, license here with Gabriel's response. He says, I am Gabriel. Pause, pause. Let that sink in, Zechariah. And Zechariah is a good priest, and he knows his scriptures. He's a Gabriel, that's the guy who, the angel who spoke to Daniel four or five hundred years ago in, in Babylon. So that sinks in. His fear levels grew. And then he goes, Gabriel continues, I stand in the presence of God. And again, Zechariah, pause, think through that. It's like, that's not possible. You can't do that and live. And sure enough, even Moses, who was in the presence of God and came down from Mount Sinai and his face was glowing, the people say, cover your face, we can't stand it. Um, even when Moses said, I want to see you face to face, God's like, hmm, I don't think you know what you're asking for. He says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So all of this is going through Zacharias' mind at this time. His fear levels are growing. And then Gabriel responds, continues on. And I was sent to speak to you very personally and to bring you this good news. And you didn't believe. And so, behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Remember how I said that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous and blameless before God, but I also indicated that they were not perfect. And here we are. Zechariah responded with doubt in his heart. He doubted God's very words. He doubted God's promises. This was, I would say, a temporary slip-up, a moment of weakness that he would uh, temporarily be punished for, Gabriel didn't strike him dead, which does happen in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament when people do not believe or they lie or whatever it might be. Instead, um, and, and Zechariah didn't lose his, his favor with God by this action. This was a momentary weakness. Now, don't get me wrong. It was a sin to disobey, disbelieve God's promises. But it didn't represent a pattern of conditional rebellion against God. Overall, Zechariah's disposition was to believe God, to obey God, and to live a life that reflected that faith. His feet were steady as he walked through his faith journey. This represented a slip of the foot leading to a temporary loss of ground, but it didn't disqualify him from God's favor or from God's mercy. Our faith journey here on earth is very much like that. We live a day at a time obeying God's commandments, growing in Christ-likeness, learning to love God and love our neighbor just a little bit more each day, a little better with each step. Sometimes we slip. We lose some ground. We are not abandoned by God, and instead we keep moving forward under his love and mercy in the righteousness that Christ bestowed upon his people. And so it is, it was with Zechariah. He was righteous, but even after experiencing the most miraculous appearance of the angel uh, in the holy place, a once-in-a-lifetime experience, on the greatest day of his life, just after being promised a son, he slipped and responded with doubt. Isn't that how it usually goes with us? When we are feeling self-assured on top of the world, we are caught off guard, and, and sometimes we slip slip into sin. 
God doesn't mind when we call out, call out to him and ask him questions. The great prophets of the Old Testament, they all have some version of how long, O oh God, will you withhold justice or whatever it might be. God doesn't mind when we call out to him in anger, in fear, in pain. But God does object to us when we doubt his power and his authority and his promises and his ability to do what he said he would do. But even there, he is gracious in how he deals with us. Zechariah punishment, Zechariah's punishment was almost comical. He couldn't speak for nine months and only lasted for the nine months. And then he was relieved of that punishment. And he could join his voice to the others when they rejoiced at the birth of his son, John. When Zechariah left the temple and faced the worshiping crowd outside, he wore his rebuke openly. He could not speak. He could not explain what took him so long, what happened in the temple, or that, the, that he encountered an angel. On the other hand, he didn't really have to uh, say anything because it was just very clear that the people even said he must have seen a vision in the temple, which would have been a great encouragement to the people because it showed that God was still working among his people. When Zechariah went home, he somehow found a way to communicate to his wife Elizabeth the indescribable day that he had had in the temple that day and that the angel told them that they would have a son. Elizabeth took the news better than Zechariah did. She believed. She must have had better hiking shoes because her foot didn't slip when she came across that rocky terrain. She gave God credit for his mercy and joyfully received the great gift when she conceived. Now, before I move on, I do want to address the very painful nature of Elizabeth's barrenness. The inability to conceive... The, 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 to carry a baby to turn, to have it die at birth is excruciatingly painful. Jill and I have never experienced that personally, so I'm not even going to pretend to know the depths of that pain um, if it's something that you're struggling with um, or have in the past. The closest I, I've come to it is when my brother and my sister-in-law had their baby die at birth. Um, just the pain that they've experienced and just the devastation of watching a two-foot coffin be lowered into the ground. Um, some people, as my brother and sister-in-law, did experience the joy of having another child after that. Some people don't, and, and they don't experience that joyful ending, and that pain is a part of the rest of their life. They carry that burden along the path as long as they walk this earth. And so I don't want to offer empty words of comfort here. don't want to express Christian platitudes. All I can do is point you to the great comforter, Jesus Christ, who knows your pain and loves you deeply. Jesus is present with you as you go through your pain. He may choose to relieve you of your pain while you live your life here on earth like he did for Elizabeth, but, he doesn't, but if he doesn't, one day he will relieve you of your pain when you stand before his very throne and his love washes over you. All your pain will melt away. To some extent, many of us 
feel that some kind of pain like that, the longing for something that doesn't materialize. You, th- you, you thought you were going to get that job promotion or that, uh, that new job, and you watched somebody else receive that job instead. Um, you, you, you struggle. You can't sit at the family uh, table for a holidays because it's just too painful. Um, or you, know, you long for a special relationship with someone to share your life with, and that just never materializes. Or you lost a loved one, and every holiday is a reminder of that loss. We all have some kind of pain, some kind of longing for something. And again, all I can do is point you to our great comforter, Jesus Christ. He knows your pain, and he loves you deeply. And one day he will relieve you of all your pain. It may be during your journey here on earth, but as the latest, it will be when you stand before him, before the throne, and in his presence, your pain will melt away. God cared deeply and personally for Zechariah and Elizabeth in their pain. Our text also shows us that God cares for all his people around the world throughout history. So let me bring you back to verse 13, where the angel says, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been answered. Now, it's not clear what prayer that was. And you're going, oh, Jim, I think it's pretty clear because the very next sentence says you will now have a child. So that is certainly part of what um, is, is at play here. But I think there's more to it than that. Consider the context. of Ze- context. Zechariah was on duty, getting ready to burn the incense that represented the prayers of the people. He was in the holy place representing the people of God, and his immediate attention and prayers at that time would have been for the people, and most likely for their salvation, for their repentance, and for coming to the promise, uh, for the coming of the promised Messiah. The second argument for why the prayer in question might not be the prayer of the, uh, might be the prayer of the people, and not Zechariah's prayer for the child, Luke tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were advanced in age and that their prayers for child were probably less and less frequent the older they became. So it might not have even been on his mind as he walked into the temple at that time. As is often the case, though, in the scriptures, something has more than one meaning. Even like last week, we talked about the paralytic and and Jesus promised healing. And that healing was both physical, stand and pick up your mat and walk. And it was also spiritual, your sins are forgiven. So many times scriptures have more than one meaning behind it. Um, And so we'll take a look at that second um, layer of meaning of this promise. So the rest of Gabriel's message to Zechariah described the type of person that John would be and the type of ministry he would have. And all of this description would certainly support the fulfillment of the prayers of the people who prayed for salvation and repentance and for the promised Messiah to come. So let me take it back to verse 13 again. Elizabeth will will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or drink or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. 
And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of his fathers to the children and to the disobedient to to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. We already looked at Gabriel's announcement about um, the, the miraculous event of Elizabeth that Elizabeth would conceive. But he goes on to say that many will rejoice at his birth because he will be great before the Lord. So why will John be great before the Lord? One, he is the last in the line of the Old Testament prophets. He would become the last and final prophet to announce the coming Messiah, the coming Savior. In fact, John actually met the Messiah. It was his cousin Jesus. He was actually the the prophet who actually saw the fulfillment of the prophecies come true. The second reason why John would be great before the Lord is because John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. We will see the proof of that in a couple of weeks when we see that uh, Mary, who, who is, who is um, um, expecting, has conceived Jesus, and she goes to visit Elizabeth, who is also with John. And so the, the infant within, John, within Elizabeth leaps for joy when, when, he, when he senses the presence of Jesus. So we'll see that. So even within the womb, the Holy Spirit was already present. So that alone says that there's something extraordinary was taking place with John and something that made him great before the Lord. Third, as I mentioned, John was the last Old Testament type of prophet. He called people to repentance and to return to their God. And that is what John did. He didn't preach the gospel. He didn't talk about Jesus and the cross. He simply called people to repentance, to be baptized, and to return to their God. In fact, he was compared to the great prophet Elijah. Elijah called the people to repentance and, to de- and demonstrated that power of the Holy Spirit through healing and doing other miracles. Although John did not heal people like Elijah did, he did prepare the hearts of the people. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. To soften the soil of the hearts of the people of Israel. When Jesus walked the countryside, he demonstrated the power of the Holy Spirit by healing many and doing many miraculous acts. He also taught the good news, and many of those who heard Jesus' message, their hearts were already softened by John's ministry. And they received the teachings of Jesus and found true forgiveness of sins and salvation through Jesus' ministry and his ultimate act of death on the cross. And many did rejoice as a result of John's birth and ministry. He was great before the Lord for all those reasons. John stood in the crossroads of God's transforming salvation salvation plan. He was the last Old Testament prophet preaching repentance and calling the people of Israel to return to their God. As God's people waited or longed for the promised Savior, they worked hard at living righteous lives and following all the commandments of God as best they could. They gave offerings to, to atone for their sins. Jesus was born and introduced a new way of righteousness. John prepared the hearts of the people of Israel. Jesus radically changed the hearts of his people. John called the people of Israel to repent of their sins, and that required the lifeblood of an animal on their behalf. 
Jesus offered himself up as a sacrificial lamb when he hung on the cross to pay the price of our sins once and for all with his very own blood. The people of Israel often wondered if their religion, religious actions were enough for them to be declared righteous. Jesus has the power and authority to declare his people righteous once and for all because he paid the price of our sin through his death and resurrection. Noah talked about Advent earlier today. Um, so we're entering into that, that time of Advent at this point. It's a time of preparation. We prepare our hearts for the uh, celebration of Jesus' birth. We prepare our hearts for the return of Christ. Elizabeth and Zechariah had nine months of preparation and anticipation after the angel proclaimed that they would have a child. Elizabeth was joyfully prepared to meet her son, John, in person. Jill always said that. I can't wait to meet this person that's inside of me. Zechariah was probably equally excited, but he couldn't express it because he couldn't talk for nine months. Um, but he had a lot of time to think, and so he was able to reflect what the angel said and prepare. What is he going to do when, the, when John was born? And he made the right decision. He planned and thought through it, and when the time came, he named him John as the angel instructed him to do. So he used his time of preparation well. The people of Israel were preparing to receive the promised Savior during that time of anticipation. Some remained faithful, like Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were righteous before God and walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord because they believed the promises of God. Others lost hope in God's promises and, and, and ended up in, lived in disbelief and disobedience. As we continue our journey through life here on earth, and we find ourselves in time of Advent, a time of preparation and waiting for the return of Jesus Christ, how are we doing? How do we spend our time in preparation? John prepared the hearts of the people of Israel to turn to God so they would be receptive when Jesus, their Savior, arrived. Have you turned your heart to God? Have you repented and accepted Jesus' sacrifice on the cross so that he could declare you righteous? It all begins there. If you have not, then hear the call of John, the greatest prophet, the call to repent and turn, to your, heart, turn your heart to God and then understand and hear the gospel of Jesus. If you have turned your heart to God, how are you preparing your heart for Christ's return? Do you believe his promise that he will one day return and make the all things new? That certainly will flavor how we live our lives. Do you live expectantly in that reality? Do you doubt God's promise? Do you have doubt that he can declare you righteous? Do you doubt his love? for you? As you prepare for his return, keep your heart inclined towards God. Keep asking him questions. Tell him you are angry. Express your pain and your suffering to him. Jesus wants to hear, your, you, wants to hear from you so that he can love you and care for you deeply. But as you do, believe his promises. Don't doubt his promises. 
Are you like some in John's day where the people have given up on God's promises and were no longer anticipating the Messiah, no longer preparing for his arrival? Have you veered off path or have you completely lost your way? There is a difference between deeply rooted patterns of rebelling against God, running from God, or pretending that he doesn't even exist. These patterns will result in a permanent separation from God. If you are following him on the path to greater love and understanding, greater Christ-likeness, and you slip back into old sinful habits, that doesn't mean you have lost your salvation. It can simply be a temporary loss of ground, like Zachariah's moment of doubt. You may even experience direct consequences of your sin, but it does not mean you have lost your salvation. It does not mean you are not a Christian in the first place. Jesus continues to love and care for you even when you slip and give in to temptation. Luke teaches us that the way God personally cared for Zechariah and Elizabeth is how he cares for each one of us and how he cares for his people around the world and throughout history on a grand scale. Let us pray.